Welcome back, everyone, to a very special episode of May It Displease the Court. It's a podcast about how unjust the court system has always been, but especially now. Today's episode, we are looking at demystifying the role of law clerks in the court. Law clerks can be a position of great influence, but it's not one that the public knows much about. Today, I've invited Professor Eric Siegel. Uh, He is the Kathy Lawrence Ash Professor of Law at Georgia State University College of Law. He teaches federal courts and constitutional law. He's authored books on originalism as, as faith and supreme myths, why the Supreme Court is not a court and its justices are not judges. I mean, are we jealous of that title or what? That's incredible. <laughs> he has had op-eds and essays appear in the New York Times, the LA Times, Slate, Fox. He's appeared as a pundit on CNN, MSNBC, Fox, also on the Sirius uh, National XM radio show, Stand Up with Pete Dominic. So you can check him out on all these great platforms. I found him on Twitter, and he's also getting very famous on TikTok, so you can find him there. (laughs) I really recommend him on Twitter. I learned so much from his daily tweets. But the reason I asked him to come on is because... He was a clerk for Judge Charles Moy for the Northern District of Georgia, also in the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. And he has been kind of championing the importance of who is your clerk on Twitter. And I thought he would be great to come on to talk about this. So also, oh, I forgot to mention, he has his own podcast, Supreme Myths, and really um, subscribe to that for a very intelligent look at all of these issues. But uh, Professor Siegel, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I'm actually thrilled you're willing to raise this issue because it is an issue that people in my world don't like to talk about. No, I, that's really the point of this podcast is to talk about things that the profession doesn't want to talk about. And that's a lot, actually. Criticisms we feel we can't levy against the judiciary and the judicial system as a whole. And I think that that's a real problem. Um, we're not going to get better. We're not going to do better if we can't critique ourselves. That's well put, and I agree 100%. <laughs> All right, well, let's get into kind of the meat of today, uh, which are law clerks. Kind of what brought law clerks to sort of a, the forefront, or at least it should be a bigger forefront of discussion, is the appointment or the hiring of um, Crystal Clanton by Judge William Pryor of the 11th Circuit. Maybe you want to give just a little bit of background on that? A lot of breaking news on that. I think we should leave that for a few minutes. Let, let's talk about law clerks generally. And th- so, so there'll be a better context for that conversation. So here's a true, here's true life story about my law clerking experience, which should scare everybody to death. And again, this is a, not again, this is a hugely long time ago, but I don't think this has changed based on my conversations with students. So I report to work right out of law school from my district court judge, a trial court judge, federal trial court judge in Atlanta, who, by the way, was a very Republican conservative judge who ran for Senate 60s, but was not but, and was a great man with a lot of integrity. And in fact, I clerked for a judge who twice enjoined Ronald Reagan from sending Cuban dissidents back to Cuba. He was reversed twice immediately by the 11th Circuit, but my judge did the right thing. Um, as a Republican and joining Ronald Reagan, it was a huge news back in the day. This is how our office worked. And I think this is how most district court judges in this country work. We had a big shelf and there were tons of files. And on those files were dispositive motions, motions for summary judgment, motions to dismiss, 
I'm not talking about criminal cases now. I'm not talking about motions to suppress. Occasionally we get those. He handled most of the criminal stuff kind of in person. But on the civil side, you know, huge, this is Atlanta, Georgia, huge lawsuits, you know, and, and civil rights lawsuits and all kinds of things. I would pick up the file. I would read through the motions. I would draft an order 99% of the time without talking to the judge. The order would go to him. And 99% of the time he would sign it and not change it. Now I want you to think about that. I was 25 years old. I had never practiced law a day in my life. And to this day, I remember mistakes I made. Not because I was not working hard. I was not because I was dumb. I wasn't. I was just young and raw and inexperienced. And these were dispositive motions a lot of the time. Most of the, so at the time, there were 12 district court judges in Atlanta. There's more now, I think. But at the time, there were 12. 11 of the 12 worked that, exactly that way. I think a lot of district court judges today work that way because their criminal dockets are so busy and they're so overworked that they, so the law clerk has a tremendous amount of influence. And remember, the judge hasn't seen the file yet. He just reads the memo. I mean, the, the draft order. How you phrase things has to be accurate or he's not getting a true. Um, and no, I don't think any district court judge reads through all of the briefs in civil cases. I think that is deferred to the law clerk, who are almost always right out of law school, inexperienced and dumb like me at times. Real problem. So let's even just break it down a little bit more. So you're right out of law school and to and in order to get a federal clerkship, you're a good student. So you were you did well in law school. Great. Yeah, you have to be a great, a you have great to be a student, great student. Right. Also. So that but but you don't know. Let's let's rephrase let's rephrase that. You have to have great grades. True. Which is not the same thing as being a great student. True. Um, but you know, you did well in law school, but you, everyone I knew went straight out of law school, straight into clerkship. So this is your first job out of law school Yes, and you are working for a judge or you could be a pool clerk. Well, the pool clerks are more of the court of appeals. We'll get to that in a minute. Okay. Because what I'm describing now, by the way, is just, I shouldn't say just, there are hundreds, you know, there, there are, I don't know how many federal district court judges there are, but there are a lot and they have a lot of power. That, you know, I think this is what I describe is how most federal judges work. While the court could, in theory, do all of this work, they they can't. So that's it, you know, it's kind of a division of labor where and in judges can choose to work differently. I mean, if you have like a judge that works round the clock, maybe they're digging into the files more. But I think you're right. The majority of them rely on their clerks to be going through. And yes. I mean, when you say dispositive motion, you mean it's it's a motion that decides. Yes. The issue. Yes. Right. And so in essence. Or, or doesn't. In this world, it was true in 1983 but when I clerked, but it, it's much more true today. If you deny a dispositive motion, like cross motions for summary judgment, that means the parties are probably going to settle because trying cases are too expensive. But that's a huge power, right? I mean, it, you know, uh, um, and, and I think, you know, and my judge did this too sometimes. This was used as a way to enable settlements, which is fine. I think that's good. But again, I'm the one framing the case. I'm the one cataloging the issues. I'm the one telling him what the law is. I knew nothing. And he was your supervisor. You, you didn't have like a, a more experienced clerk over you that, that then reviewed it. So, so my, the way my judge worked is there were, he had two clerks and we had two-year clerkships. So there's always one junior, one senior. The senior clerk never looked at my work. And when I was a senior clerk, I never looked at my other clerk. Right. So in essence, there really isn't a supervisory 
role other than the judge who isn't digging into the files and getting at the nitty gritty. They're just going based upon your recommendations. So it's a position that holds an incredible amount of power that the public doesn't realize. They really don't. Correct. Yes. And it's also the hiring practices are bizarre and not transparent. I, I love my judge. He's passed away. I loved him. I thought he was a really decent man. I wish there were more judges today like him. He had a sense of justice. Having said that, this is how I got the job. I interviewed, uh, and then I flew to Los Angeles for my summer job at Gibson Dunn and Crutcher. And I was actually planning on moving to LA and clerking there. I had about 15 clerkships lined up in Los Angeles. The judge I worked for was in Atlanta. Uh, he, ca- he called me and said, Eric, I really enjoyed our interview. If I offered you a job, will you take it? And the reason he put it that way was back then, you had five minutes to decide. Um, I don't know if that's true today still. I, I don't know the answer, but I think it is probably likely like that. <laughs> um, when judges hire is unclear. And of course, since grades are the biggest factor, there are a lot of diversity issues among law clerks, you know, which is sad. Now, let me give you the other side of the argument. Sure. Let me tell you what I've heard from law professors who were law clerks who I think want to find a way to say this isn't so bad. I don't agree. Uh, now, again, we're only talking district court judges here. We'll, let's talk about Court of Appeals, Supreme Court in a minute. What they say is, look, your judge was, my judge was probably 55 or 60 when I, worked, when I first started working, maybe 65. Of course, they're younger today, which is terrible. But leaving that, leaving that aside, they've been practicing law for 30 years. They're usually very successful lawyers or politicians or both. And they're not hungry. And they think they've heard it all before. And a, and a scared, hungry young person at the beginning of his career or her career or their career are going to be much, much, much more you know, enthusiastic about digging deep, getting to the truth and all of that. There is some truth to that defense, but nowhere near enough truth to overrule what you and I know is the right idea, which is I was deciding summary judgment motions in complicated commercial law cases. I had no freaking idea what I was. Yeah, I mean, it sounds to me like there needs to be an intermediate level where the law clerk goes to all of the everything should go through them. And then it goes on to the judge, Uh, you know, somebody who is a who is stays there or is that role. And and that's that's how most state court judges work. They have permanent law, permanent law clerks. Right. And that's my my, you know, I I don't practice in federal court. So my experience was with um, state law clerks and the judges choose those. Right. And a lot of times, sometimes you're actually like thrilled. You're like, oh, that guy isn't super great on the law or they're more prosecution right. focused. And the, they might hire a law clerk that, you know, maybe comes from a defense background or a public defender background. And you're like, OK, well, at least maybe I'll get a fair shot right. on the law, which is when you're on, I'm on, I come from the defense side, criminal defense, indigent criminal defense. So that's all you want is like, give me a fair shot on the law because it's you don't get it most of the time. Right. Right. Let me tell you an interesting. The second thing I wanted to say before we, we should move to the Court of Appeals. But before we do that. So because of my experience, which I know was shared in Atlanta anyway, I used to be part of our school. I used to run our schools in of court, which is this organization just for your listeners, an organization where law professors, lawyers, judges, and most importantly, students get together once a month, maybe, and have programs about professionalism and ethics. And in my case, we sometimes have con law programs. I remember when Lawrence versus Texas came out, that's where the Supreme Court 
held Texas's anti-sodomy law unconstitutional. We did a whole thing on sodomy. That was kind of fun. Um, but um, I ran the pro. I'm not, I ran this program, although you know, very deferential to the lawyers and judges in it in our community for my school's benefit, that kind of thing. I could never, ever, ever ram through a program on law clerks. And I tried. I tried. I could ram through programs on sodomy. I could ram through programs on affirmative action, voting rights, um, any kind of uh, rules of professional responsibility issues, no matter how, even gender discrimination, no problem. Law clerks, nope, not going to do it. Not, not going to talk about it. It's like this. this. No, because judges want to be seen as doing all of the work when that's not even close to being true. The lawyers didn't want to talk about it. Well, lawyers don't want to talk about it because lawyers appear in front of courts and they don't want to get, they don't want anybody to, they don't want a court to come in yes. and be like, yes. you know, or a law yes. clerk, you know, and, and then they're. They, they didn't want to talk about law clerks in front of judges. They, I think they would have done it had no judges been there, but all of our programs have judges. So they did not want to express their true feelings, I think, in front of judges. Oh, But, yeah, yeah. but that's weird sure. because I also had, I, this is how serious it is. Over my tenure of doing that for 15, 20 years, we had like three programs, this will not surprise you, that I personally ran through on how do judges really decide? You know, does the law really matter to court of appeals judges? That kind of thing. And they were willing to do that. I mean, so like law clerk is like the third rail of American legal system. We can't talk about law clerk. God, it's crazy. That is really crazy. Um, I didn't realize it was that. It is. It is in Atlanta. It wasn't. Well, and honestly, I wasn't going to do it. But someone on Twitter, a listener on Twitter was like, hey, could, you should do a podcast on this. I'm like, all right. So the picture I painted about the district court clerks, which is really important, uh, is not the same picture as the United States Court of Appeals or the Supreme Court. So at the Court of Appeals level, I think this is pretty uniform. Clerks write bench memo first before the oral arguments. And so the so the judges have now a lot of a lot of a lot of circuits have full, you know, they won't have every clerk write a memo. One of the three judges on the panel, they're usually three judge panels, will write a memo um, that goes to all the judges. And then when the judges decide how they want to rule, then a law clerk will write a draft opinion. But that's a very different order. That's the judge saying to the law clerk, we want to decide it this way. You draft it. That's very, and, and that's how it should be. It's very different than district court, where the law clerk has, in the first instance, decides what to do with the legal issue. Obviously, the Court of Appeals way is much better, but Court of Appeals judges have much more time on their than trial judges. Right. And they deal with, and that's in, in the appellate work I do, that's kind of where I'm familiar with. But I've had instances where the bench memo, I know the bench memo was wrong. They're misstating the facts and all of the judges are arguing with me about my facts that I know are, must be wrong <laughs> in the bench memo. So, right. and forget that. I mean, you're not gonna, you're, you're not yeah. getting over that. Whatever take was put in that's it and and it's that's yeah, no, difficult uh, yeah now anybody who knows me knows that usually i have to mention judge posner once a once in appearance this is the thing about law clerks and court of appeals judges. at least there the law clerks the memo might propose a result but they don't write the opinion or draft the opinion until the two of the three judges on the panel to the judges decide which is thank god for that judge posner is the last judge i think in america to write the first draft, he wrote the first drafts of all of his own opinions, over 3,000 in his career. And then he would give that draft to the law clerks and say, check me on wow. this, ask me hard questions. You know, if I got the facts wrong, tell me, correct the record, whatever. Um, that's obviously, I think, a much better way of going for a judge to write. 
Well, and I think that's what that's what everybody thinks judges are doing. Yeah, but they're not. But they're not. So one judge was doing this, and the public thinks that every judge is behaving yeah. the way one judge in history right. behaved. Well, when Posner retired, he told me that there was one other judge he knew of on all the court. He'd been a court of appeals judge since 1983. He retired in like 2017 or 18. I forget. It's a long time. And he traveled a lot and worked a lot. He said there was one other judge he once met who wrote his own, the first drafts of his court of appeals. And that's it. Like, you're right. It's, okay. it's a, Two. It's Two. Uni- right. And, and, and how you write the first draft is so important. Yeah. You know? Um, so I, I do wish, I think, again, it's a different problem than, district, it's, it's, than the district court problem. But it's a problem. When law clerks write the bench memo and the first draft of the opinion, and again, most of these law clerks are white, right out of law school with no experience. Some were district court clerks like me, but I think most are not. Most go straight to the court of appeals, and um, they have too much power. They just do. Yeah, but let's let's also kind of pivot to what comes next. If you you didn't know a whole lot, and you're not in the job for when you started, and then you're not in the job for very long. Well, I'll tell you what happened to me, which is really interesting. And I wonder how many other people this happens to. So I clerked for two years for the district court, one year for the Court of Appeals, and then went to Gibson, Dunn & Crutcher. And I start in D.C. And on my first day of work, I started the same day as another person who had clerked. But he was a little bit ahead of me in time. And then he had practiced. Two, he only clerked for one year. And then he practiced for two years. And then he came to Gibson, Dunn. And we started the same day. Um, I think we were generally of the same intelligence and the same, you know, but he was so much farther along than I was in terms of experience and knowing how to do things and knowing how big firms work and everything else. Um, the senior associate we had who was under the gun for the reasons, you know, he got very frustrated with me because I couldn't do as well as the other guy, but he'd already practiced law for two years. Right. Here's the thing. I, I say this with a lot of confidence. Being a district court clerk absolutely helps you if you want to be a litigator in federal in federal court, or even in state court, because you hear argument, you see it. It's it's a very active thing. It's very different motions and different things. Being a court of appeals clerk is good for one thing and one thing only: being a law professor. <laughs> but most don't do that. Most go on to practice, and it, it counts so much. If you're a court of appeals clerk, you're the big, and it's it's not it's good experience. It's a fun job. I recommend it to all my students that have the grades to get it. But it's really just law review all over again, to some degree. And the experience is wildly overrated. Yeah. But I think it's like an um, accolade, you know? It's like, oh, I, I have this. I did this. It's an yeah. accolade. And when you're going to, you know, t- typically it's so, so when you're making clerk money uh, and then you move on to big firm money, right? I mean, that, that's the part that's kind of yes. uh, unsaid in all of that is that there's a, there's a big pay increase once you go into private practice, typically depending on what you choose. Um, and then if yeah. you then move to being a law professor, you yeah. go back to kind of more comfortable, but not uh, excessive. Not not private industry not pay. Not private no. industry pay. <laughs> right. So, you know, people are choosing choosing their values there. And we should also say, I think, that and everything we've talked about so far is problematic and serious and should be discussed more. And we haven't even begun discussing the Supreme Court where these problems are at their very work. Right. And, um, you know, we should probably move to, <laughs> to the Supreme Court. <laughs> so they're different problems. Obviously, at the Supreme Court, they write bench memos um, and they don't write an opinion to the judges tell them, justices tell them how they want to come out, how the case is going to come out. And, and I think that at the Supreme Court, the clerks have the least amount of influence 
of all three levels. So on that score, it's not terrible, although, as everybody knows, it is the clerks who go through the tertiary position and the writ of tertiary. And they basically... Let's just back up and just explain exactly yeah. what that is. Yeah. So, so the Supreme Court decides on its own docket, which we can discuss. The problems of that we could discuss in a two-hour separate podcast. It's insane that they take their own docket, but they do. They have since the 1920s. Um, and, um, but they don't go... They get, they get, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of petitions. So they delegate that task to the law clerks and usually to a pool. And so we have now the Supreme Court judges usually only hire people who have clerked for a year before the court of appeal. So we have, but they still never practice law most. And so again, we have people who have never practiced law deciding to a substantial degree, making recommendations about which cases the court should hear. And if they don't bring a case to the justices, justices almost certainly won't grant certiorari. In other words, the, the justices will take very seriously the recommendation to grant but Unless it's a high-profile case, of which 99% are not, if, a, if the clerks say don't take it, they won't take it. Like that's done, and that gives the clerks an enormous amount of power. Again, right now, I, I'm not. I'm not going to suggest it can be done a different way. I am going to suggest they should at least be honest and transparent about the process, and they're not because what I've just described is the only thing we know about the process. It's also true the clerks draft the opinions in the first instance. There, there are no Judge Posner's up there, sadly. Right. Um, and uh, again, that's also a lot of power, uh, but that's not even the biggest problem. The biggest problem is if you manage to get a Supreme Court clerkship, the legal industry views that as a unique. I believe New York firms are now giving four hundred thousand dollars. Holy cow! To Supreme Court clerk, the, the the big firm, and here's and here's the problem with all of that. Unlike district court judges who, and even court of appeals judges, who pick their clerks by, their clerks go through, you know, a thousand resumes, pick out 15, give them to the judge, judge picks out three others, they interview them. At the Supreme Court level, and we just saw this, I mean, Justice Thomas admitted to the investigator in the the Clanton case you started to talk about earlier, that he called Bill Pryor and said, you should hire this person. But it's usually the reverse. Usually it's the court of appeals judges who call the Supreme Court and say, I have a great clerk, you should hire them. And there are these, what are called feeder court of appeals judges. Of, and, and, and that's where the Supreme Court gets their clerk. There are all kinds of things wrong with that. System. Yeah. It, it, it makes Harvard, Yale, and Stanford, Chicago, Columbia people much more likely to get the clerkships. It has class ramifications, race ramifications, gender ramifications. The good old boy network, or there's now a good old woman network, I think, to some degree. I mean, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, an American hero by any measure, as a lawyer who deserves a proper place along with Thurgood Marshall, as a lawyer in um, bringing equality, more equality, excuse me, to America, she hired one person of color clerk in her one. Most of the justices only hire from Harvard, Yale, and a few other schools. And then once you get that, you're just, you're, you're good for life pretty much unless you really screw up. And the amount of weight that is given to those positions is insane. And by the way, this kills me. The only reason Amy, the only reason Amy Coney Barrett is on the Supreme Court of the United States um, is because mm-hmm. she clerked for Justice Scalia. Because the rest of her record, when she got nominated to the Seventh Circuit, 
knowing she'd be the next pick if Ruth Bader Ginsburg died or retired under Donald Trump. I, there are hundreds and hundreds of law professors who had much more, at her age, who had much better records, who, 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 who had done more scholarship, more service. Uh, now, I, I know her, and she's a nice person, and she's very smart, but she's no different than hundreds of us. It's the Scalia clerkship that made the difference. That's how important it is. And she only got that clerkship because the dean of Notre Dame, where she went to school, is a very strong supporter of religion rights. Um, not surprising, he was dean of Notre Dame. Um, called Scalia and said, you should hire this young right. lady. Because Scalia didn't hire from schools like that most of the time. Even though Notre Dame's... Right. He wasn't slumming down in Notre Dame. Right. right. He was not slumming yeah. Not most of the time. Occasionally, but not most of the time. Um, the whole thing is broken. The whole, the whole thing is broken. They should hire their clerks differently. The clerks should not be exclusively the ones deciding on the cert memos. The clerks should not be writing the first drafts of the opinion. They write 12 opinions, a year, 12 majority opinions a year. They could write the first drafts. It's not that hard. Sure. And those clerks also, and I have so many good friends who were law clerks for Supreme Court justices, and I'm, and I'm very close with Mike Dorf, who, where I blog, Dorf on Law. Actually, I'm doing, I'm, his wife is also a law professor. She's wonderful. Mike is a great guy, and he's really smart. He clerked for Justice Kennedy during the Casey term. And at the time, it was reported by reputable sources that coming out of his graduate research assistant stint with Lawrence Tribe in 1991, 92, he was prominent in getting Kennedy to change his mind because Kennedy had voted to overturn Roe versus Wade in, in the 1989 case. Um, Mike won't say anything about that, and he shouldn't. I don't blame Mike for not talking about that. They will never talk about anything. Oh, wow. Supreme Court clerks never say anything meaningful about their judges unless their judges die. Um, and even then, it's, they're, they're reluctant. And that cone of silence is insane. Um, so can I give one, one really good example of that, one compelling? Please, please. So when Justice Scalia died, one of his law – and Justice Scalia, at, in the middle of his career, would hire one, one liberal law clerk pretty frequently. He stopped doing that later on. Um, but there was a time when he would hire a liberal law clerk to fight um, and so after he died, uh, uh, someone who, who clerked for Scalia wrote a piece, very friendly and amicable. I mean, you know, like they, they always write nice pieces about their bosses. Of course. Of course. But he said there was one big disappointment. And, and, and that's kind of like saying, besides that, Mrs. Lincoln, how do you enjoy the play? Because this is an amazing disappointment. He said, I was on the bench during one of the affirmative action cases. And I wrote a long memo to Justice Scalia showing him that the original meaning of the 14th Amendment doesn't bar affirmative action. And 95% um, of scholars agree with that assessment. I'm not saying affirmative action is constitutional or not. I'm just saying the original meaning of the 14th Amendment doesn't prohibit it. And of course, Scalia claimed to be an originalist. And so this law clerk wrote, he, he, he knew he wouldn't change his mind, but he wanted to give him a perspective on, uh, on this kind of thing. Because Scalia voted to strike down every affirmative action case he ever saw, that he ever saw. And, um, the clerk said Scalia absolutely ignored it, never mentioned it to him, never discussed it, and would not discuss the original meaning of the 14th Amendment when it comes to affirmative action. And that's just so disappointing. I mean, I, I mean, knowing, I, now that I know Scalia as well as I do, it's par for the course, but it's, it should be really disturbing to people. Um, and that's one of the rare instances 
where a law clerk has said something negative about a, 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 a former boss. You can't get him to talk. Uh, Justice Rehnquist used to call all, Chief Justice Rehnquist used to call all the law clerks in and say on the first day of the job, if you ever, ever breach any confidentiality, we, we will destroy your career. Oh, that's, um, that's great. That's really lovely. It's a... Yeah. Yeah. I mean, these are taxpayer fund. Now, I'm not, I'm not suggesting law clerks should divulge their private conversations with their judges. Not, you know, of course not. Judges should be able to randomly discuss their cases in blunt terms, knowing that's confidential. But there are other things. For example, the role of clerks in the cert process or the role of clerks in how decisions are written. Why is that secret? Like, that shouldn't be secret. And they won't talk about it. No, they won't talk about it. And they want, um, you know, they want the, the the mythology, the near deification. That's their, that's the key to their authority and their power um, is if we subscribe to all of that. And as attorneys, I think we're, and they, they teach it in law school, you know, you're, you don't think you can criticize the court. You know, it's something that you do over drinks, after work, back at the office, but, you know, never, it's almost like airing dirty laundry, but it allows systemic dysfunction and unfairness to persist throughout all levels of the law, you know, all the way down. All of those things. Yeah. And, And there's all, and really some of this comes down to also to the kind of the mythical life tenured godlike status we put on these judges. They're kind of wise people who come down from a big courthouse on the hill or whatever and impart their wisdom to us. Um, that that mythology needs to change. So let's circle back to Crystal Clancy. Yes, let's go back. Yeah, let's go back and talk about talk about Miss um, Clanton and you know she's kind of brought law clerks to the forefront at yeah. least for some of us as as to the you know the dangers of putting in uh people with certain views so so i'm wrapped up in this because i've written a lot about this i know (laughs) and and in fact a good friend of mine is that who's a reporter for the atlanta journal constitution just wrote a story two days ago on this when we're done i'm about i'm going to call him up because i have some things to say to him let's start at the beginning okay Um, yes let's please in 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 2017 jane mayer who is the author of the book dark money and an extremely well-respected journalist with definitely a progressive liberal bent. That's just clear, but, but, but a very well-respected journalist and author wrote a piece for the New Yorker about turning, I think it's called Turning Point USA, which is basically a far right, very conservative high school type association, um, or at least it used to be full of high school kids, but I know others. And what she wrote was one of the key people at that organization had sent text messages she, the reporter had received text messages, copies of text messages, where this woman had said, I hate black people. I hate all black people. I'm done. Um, so the story comes out and, and, and the woman is fired two days later. And um, too, too racist, even for an organization that I think is actually incredibly racist. Um, right, right. And, 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 and literally, I don't know. Very shortly thereafter, she gets a job with Ginny Thomas. Ginny Thomas, Justice Thomas's wife. And then we and we learned yeah. this week she even lived with them for a while. They really opened their doors to them. So that was 2017. 
Eventually, she goes to Antonin Scalia Law School. And then it was reported, I don't know the timing of this, four months ago, five months ago, something like that, that she had received an offer to be a clerk for the chief judge of the 11th Circuit, a guy named Bill Pryor, who in 1997, which would be roughly 17 or 18 years before Shelby County gutted the Voting Rights Act. In 1997, he testified in front of Congress that the Voting Rights Act is not needed. It's an intrusion on states' rights, and it should go away. That's the kind of he is the protege of Jeffrey Beauregard Sessions and a clear and obvious racist who was our attorney general. So it comes out that Boo Pryor hired this woman. So Ruth Marcus of The Washington Post, another progressive but well-respected journalist, writes this long article. What is Bill Pryor doing? This woman said that she hates all black people. How can he possibly hire her? and uh, right. no comment from Bill Pryor, ever. Um, I read a blog post about it. I'm on Twitter about it. Uh, Above the Law, which is kind of the legal uh, a legal website started by David Latt, who everybody loves and thinks is wonderful. And by the way, is very moderate in his politics. Above the Law, he left Above the Law, but he created it, and it's very successful. They ran the same story, saying, what is Bill Pryor doing? We don't understand. And I kept putting it on Twitter and on my blog and everything else that, this story is going to die and the news cycle is going to take it out. And then eventually, five members of Congress wrote a letter to Chief Justice Roberts saying, you're the head of the kind of administration of the federal courts. This is a terrible situation. And imagine the black people who work in the buildings, both in Alabama, where Judge Pryor sits, and Atlanta, two blocks from my office, where the 11th Circuit sits on bank, and Judge Pryor is all the time. The black people in those buildings, and there are many of them, when they read about this, what do you expect them to do with all this information? That you're hiring someone to say, what about the litigants? And what about the litigants? Coming in front of the court. So that's where the story was until when my friend and an excellent reporter, Bill Rankin, writes an article for the Atlanta Journal that says there was a judicial investigation into the charges. And here's the story that these judges found. This guy named Kirk was head of the organization. When he fired her, He basically made a public statement saying, yeah, we don't tolerate this at our institution. The new story is there were employees at that organization who would hack into people's computers, draft terrible text messages, and send them off to embarrass the people in the organization. That's what happened to Clinton, to to this woman. She never, what she said was, I don't remember saying it. It's not who I am. She never denied saying those things. She never said anything about this, this hacking situation. She did sign an NDA, a non-disclosure agreement, apparently. But here's, what I want, here's the main point I want to say. So the federal district court judges who investigated this, the question to them was, did Bill Pryor, and she's also hired to be a law clerk for a district court judge in Alabama first, did these two judges do their due diligence? The report concludes yes, because they found out that, in fact, there's this claim that was never uttered publicly ever by anyone at any time until this investigation that this was due to hacked email. What they didn't do was talk to either reporter, which is an amazing thing. So I wrote to Jane Mayer on um, Twitter and said, are you going to respond to this? Do you know about this? and And she said, I'm really busy right now, but I will look into it. But the report does not, judges report that exonerates this woman doesn't say they talk to either reporter. 
So Ruth Marcus wrote a piece in the Washington Post saying this whole thing is fishy. It all sounds post hoc. Thomas was interviewed by the judges and he said, yes, I believed her. We gave her a home. We felt bad for her. I am going to well, I, I'm just say I am going to put pressure on my friend to do more digging because I have a well, when you, go ahead. I, I read that article yeah. and the quote is the quote is that there was somebody in the organization that did some email that, that hacked some text yeah. messages. It does not say that's fair that that these that these particular were hacked right. it does not say that it's spe- it specifically dances around that so i don't think it says anything frankly because it i okay did they hack these text messages from her because these are the ones that are at issue not nothing else is at issue right. and so some something that dances around that doesn't get at so that. so uh, and the the judge that looked into this i think it's important to look, because I wondered, yeah. is this a second circuit, right? Yeah. This is where I'm, I'm from second circuit. I don't, but I know that she was appointed by Bush, Judge Livingston. And she's a, she's a frequent lecturer at the Federalist Society, which I know you do as yeah. well. Yeah. But. Well, well, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold no, on. No, 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 no. But she's a, Repu- she's a judge that was appointed by a Republican who, who, right. who speaks at the Federalist Society. I think that's no, different. Well, no, I want to say, I want to be very clear about this for everybody listening. Starting two years ago, I've done 15 at least Federal Society things in the last two years. At every single one, I have said to the invitee, whoever invited me, I will do this. But if they used to have, they had this thing what they read at the beginning of all their programs that we're a nonprofit organization and we don't take positions on policy or nominees for public office. And I'd say to them, if you, if you read that, then the first thing that happens next is you cut to me and you let me say very politely, that's not true. What you just heard is not true. It's not to discuss. Today we're discussing whatever abortion, affirmative action, guns. But if you read that in front of me, you must give me the opportunity to say it's not true. I wrote an op-ed in the New York Times yeah. with Carolyn Fredrickson saying it's not true. And what's happened is they don't read it anymore. And, and anything I, whenever I appear, they don't read it. Um, so I did some this matter, a teeny bit of good in this <laughs> in this crazy, fearless society-dominated world. I still get abuse from people on the left for appearing. I do it for my students. I do it for students everywhere. And I think the debates are good. And they usually, when I'm on them, they're balanced. That doesn't mean they don't do enormous harm in other places. But but the, the actual program part of this, I think, is innocent. I think you come at it for a good faith exchange. But I think we, we know now that it's not a good faith organization. But we didn't always know that it wasn't a good faith organization. Yeah. The, leaders, the leaders. The leaders. Hold on. Because there are thousands of lawyers and thousands of students. and But the leadership is horrific. Yeah, I would I would go stronger than you. I mean, they are. They're why we have. Yeah, Trump. I mean, I would say that it is not a debating society. It is an indoctrination society. That was the point of it, uh, not to engage in free debate. You know, I think it's both. I think it could be both things. It's both. Um, at, at the school level, it's a debating society. At the lawyer level, it's a debating society. At the political level, it is a dark dark money, religious, right-wing organization that really does want a theocracy in America. Yeah. Um, and it, and, but, but the lawyers and law students and s- some of the judges, many of them maybe, don't believe in those things. But the, the leadership does. And that's a real problem. Right. And they have an incredible amount of power. But that for another day. Going back to Bill Pryor for a second. Yes, please. Going back to Bill Pryor for a second. 
no matter how one, let's say it turns out we find out, I put my, I put my reporter friend on it. He really digs deep and he finds out, yes, in fact, she was hacked. She was innocent all the time. And this whole thing was, was a really terrible mistake. And I said all along, you know, she should talk. If she comes out and says it wasn't me, then we should give her the benefit of the doubt, whatever. But here's what we can't run away from. Bill Pryor said nothing for like four months. If he had given if he had come, if, and he was called by all the reporters. So when Ruth Marcus called him, he could, she, he said no comment. He could have said, wait a minute, I dug into the facts of this. Of course, I didn't just hire someone who allegedly said these things. And when I dug into it, I found out it wasn't her, that she had been hacked or whatever. Or even, or even just I dug into it and the claims aren't accurate. And that's all I'm going to say about it. But he feels so powerful and so life tenured that he didn't even have to do that. That is a disgrace. I hate black people. I hate all black people. And no comment from the judge who hires a person who allegedly said that. No public comment at all. Well, I mean, at le- let's be honest. As a, we all know that implicit racism is rampant. It's rampant in the profession. It's rampant in the judiciary. And this is just, okay, this is explicit racism, which, you know, we thought we had stamped out at least. Now, hold on. What you're calling explicit racism is the text messages, which obviously. Yes, the text messages. The text but messages. I, I, I'm going to go farther and say by prior not being willing to comment publicly on it until he had to, this judicial investigation, he had to comment. He didn't have a choice. That's explicit racism, too. The yes. idea that he wouldn't be sensitive. That that the whole world now knows because the Washington Post, you know, pretty big, pretty big newspaper. To the New Yorker and the Washington Post are major media organizations. Everybody knows that they claim she said this, and you won't even comment on it. I mean, how do we tolerate that in 2022, 2020? It's crazy. Well, I think it's this. I think it speaks to where where this legal there's a there's a legal movement going on where it's going, and I think that is yeah. it's a clear signal. Yeah where it's going. I think the I think you can also look at the uh, you know the, this the this alleged theocracy just rate the Supreme Court just racing through to fast track as many executions as they possibly can legal challenges be damned is also signaling in right. a return to perhaps much more racist decisions coming down the bench. Well I I I lost a very good friend over this episode and I want to tell your audience, when I, when I talked to Federalist Society law professors who I deal with in good faith, and I believe they deal with me in good faith on this issue, I was told repeatedly this sentence. I know Bill Pryor. He's a good guy. He wouldn't hire somebody who's racist. And when I responded, well, your good guy wanted to, wanted to gut the Voting Rights Act in 1997. Whatever you think about it in 2013. In 1997, we clearly needed the voting rights act. I mean, come on. I mean, your good guy was Jeffrey Beauregard Sessions' like mentee. Do you not care about this? Like, do you not care that it's the worst of all looks? Jeffrey Sessions' mentee in Alabama, who voted, who excuse me, testified against the Voting Rights Act, hires this woman who allegedly says these things and says nothing about it. And you're telling me he's a good guy? Come on. And that and, and I and I got nowhere with that. And then I have another and then the friend I lost is someone who, by the way, was my co-clerk uh, at Strike That. 
He wasn't my co-clerk. He came after me for the judge I worked for the district court and the judge I worked for at the Court of Appeals. I recommended him both times to both judges. We have been friends for a very long time. He was a very conservative, excuse me, compassionate, thoughtful conservative with whom you could sit down and have good debates in a civil way. And, and, and we would have exchanges of ideas. And we were, I was at his wedding. He was at my wedding. He now works for Heritage. And he's in love with Bill Pryor. Um, and worse than that, when Heritage sent out a newsletter, excuse me, a fundraising letter attacking critical race theory, and saying it is it is a, a national problem of the highest urgency and blah, blah, blah. That was too much for me. And I had an exchange with this friend of 30 years saying, I don't understand. You, you, you're smart. You know what critical race theory is. You know it's not being taught in high schools. You know it's not what it's being portrayed at. And yet your organization is trying to raise money off of this racist right. idea that somehow critical race theory is terrible. And, and he defended and, and we very sadly, I lost my friendship over that because I'm not going to I'm not going to be friends with someone who is an actual racist. And I said to him, for you to agree, this letter was appropriate. This fundraising letter was appropriate. You have to be a racist. There's no you can't. And, he, and, and it was terrible. And the Bill Pryor thing is part of that. I was like, you're having Bill Pryor speak at your organization like, like the week after this. You're not going to ask him any questions about this law clerk. Are you kidding me? He hired a woman who said, I hate all black people. And you're going to have him at your dinner and not ask him about it? I know Bill Pryor. He's a good guy. He's not a racist. I mean, this is the, the, this is the inflection point that we are at in the legal profession. And it is, it's difficult because, you know, we, we do. We go at each other, you know, on different sides. And we have these exchanges. And, and it has been, um, it's been since, since really, you know, 2016, uh, maybe 2015, where I've been having to wrestle with colleagues that I, I know and I, I, I really like and I respect and I think they're great lawyers and I, and I cannot wrap my head around some of the views that are, that are persisting. I'm like, you're smart. I, I, what is going on? And it's been very difficult. So let me give you an analogy. So me too. Me too. All of us, I think. Yeah. Um, I, I can forgive people for voting. I, I can forgive people for voting for Trump the first time, but I can't forgive them for voting for him the second um, after what he did. So but let me give, but let me, let's play the other side of this though. So I have these friends, um, not, not lawyers uh, across the street from my house who are therapists and they're really smart and well-informed and they have well-informed upper white middle-class friends who are doctors and bankers and all this stuff. Um, and at New Year's Eve, a couple of years ago, um, they were reminiscing about Bill Clinton. And this was five women, the husbands were something. The men were talking sports over there and the women were talking politics over here. And I overheard this and I went up to them and I said, you know, Bill Clinton was terrible, right? You've got to know this. I mean, his history with women, I don't care that he had affairs. That's between he and Hillary. But he had sex with an intern. I mean, no. When you're the president, you don't. And I think as governor, he did other things. And they couldn't get, the, they, they would not. Okay, yeah, but, you know, sex is sex. I'm like, what do you mean? Like, these were feminists, and they, and they forgave him for it, and, and, or, or at least they didn't hate him because of it, or think he was terrible. And I don't understand that either. Like, it, it's crazy. I'm like, look. I, I don't understand it either. Slay, slay them all. You know, that's how I feel. Slay them all. He should have resigned. He had sex with, Agreed. He had sex with an intern. I, I, I agree with that. I agree with that. 
So it's both sides. I think That's the hysteria is over all of it is completely disingenuous because the other side is also has all their own their own deal. Well, yeah, for Newt, for Newt Gingrich, right, of course, for Newt Gingrich was having an affair on his wife at the same time this was going on. Um, going back to Kurtz for one second, because I know we got to wrap it up. Yeah. Like most things involving the federal judicial system, what we really need, because I don't have all the answers. I mean, district court judges are wildly overworked and their their dockets are too big. And I don't, they can't read through all the rules. So I don't have all the answers. What I do expect, though, is transparency. And that's what we don't have. And that's what we need at every level, for, very, for different reasons at every level. That's what we need. We need the role of law clerks to be transparent. And I am telling you, I have really close progressive lawyer friends in Atlanta who would talk about anything publicly, but not yeah, that's an, that's a problem. I think we do. We need transparency. With transparency will come the push for reform. That's something they don't want. Yeah. I mean, it's really it's it, absolutely transparency. We can expand the district court so that they have fewer cases. We can, ex, you know, Congress right. can do that quite easily. And, you know, the courts control their own budgets and they can hire more people. To well, they don't. Well, they don't. Con they get their money from Congress. I mean, they don't control their own budget. True, but they can. They can, as if they couldn't ask for it and wouldn't get it. I mean, it well, it depends. Honest. You know, every 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 year, two Supreme Court justices go to Congress, and this is a public hearing, and they basically beg for money. A few years ago, this quick aside, really funny. A, a, a few years ago, Kennedy and Breyer went when Kennedy was still in the court. They were talking about the budget, but one of the senators, or I'm sorry, one of the one of the House members, whatever the committee was said to them, you know, you guys, how come you're not on TV? Uh, and this is, of course, before COVID and before the live audio. And Justice Kennedy said, well, if we were on TV, I think my colleagues would misbehave. He basically said. And I remember thinking, are you kidding me? Like, we, <laughs> a taxpayer-funded open government hearing that 250 Americans get to see and C-SPAN will cover at no charge? And you're saying no because your colleagues might misbehave? Oh, my God. Wow. Yeah. You know, people should be watching this. They should be able to see the arguments. Yeah, they should see, you know, the arguments for both sides and, you know, the judges' questions yeah. and how many times the male judges interrupt the the female justices. I mean, it's, yes. you know, how much yeah. uh, they should see Judge yeah. Gorsuch sitting there without a mask. All of these things. Well, you know, but I mean, they should see what's going on because they're Different not. Different topic, but I agree. Why, I, would, I agree. why would people be, you know, glued yes. to these things in the way that, you know, people in the profession are? Of course they're not. And, and then I guess I was just thinking out loud and I, I don't I don't like throwing my friend under the bus. So I'm not doing that necessarily. But, you know, Justice Kennedy changing his mind from 1989 in the Webster case where he voted to overturn Roe to 1992, just three years later, where he votes to sustain Roe and Casey. And if he goes the other way, Roe's overturned because there were four votes to overturn Roe. Right. Um, he was fifth. Um, why he changed his mind could actually be really important. Now, in a perfect world, he would talk about that. Now that he's retired, he would talk about that. Or we'd see his papers, which, of course, we'll never see for 50 years or whatever it is. I've got to say, it would be nice if both the justices and the law crooks would agree to be more open about why the justices do the things they do. Kennedy not changing his mind changed America. I'm sorry. Kennedy change, changing his mind changed American history. Roe was going to be overturned. Now it's going to happen again. Yeah. Well, in instead of being more transparent, I think they're becoming less transparent yes. with the shadow docket, with the yes. flood of amicus briefs coming yes. in. Again, a whole other 
huge yeah. discussion. So yeah. I, you know, I think that you know, in the dark money funded amicus briefs, not just you know anybody wants yes. to send an amicus brief. Both, both sides. sides. I got to tell you, it's both sides. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. I mean, the ACLU follows briefs all the time. You know. Oh, that's at least that's not dark money. We know it's the ACLU. Exactly. It's like I'm not saying they yeah, can't but, have. But there are, but there are liber- right. I'm not saying they can't have amicus briefs. Yeah. But it's, it you know, it's who's funding them? Who's right. saying this? Do they have something before the court? Right. There should be a requirement that every amicus brief says this brief was written by X. And there is that. And then and and to, if there was funding, here's where it came. Right. Well, it's because they, you know, the whole setup of the of the, you know, the fake 501c4. I mean, you know, they're hiding. Yeah. They're hiding it on purpose. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I think that. Again, they're moving away from transparency, not adopting ethics standards. Yep. You know, the Supreme Court, not adopt every other court is subject to ethics requirements. Yep. So, yep. you know, your push for this and, you know, it's been a long time coming. I would have <sighs> liked to have seen someone like you on President Biden's Supreme Court <laughs> commission. I can't well, say well, how. Forget, okay. So disappointed. Let's be clear. Let's be, thank you for that. Forget me because I'm just Siegel at Georgia State. There are really prominent law professors. The former dean of Stanford Law School, a law professor at Harvard, now he's emeritus, but named Mark Tushnet. Jeremy Waldron is one of the leading philosophers in the world at NYU. So we had the, so just take, take those three men for one second. Former dean of Stanford Law School, <laughs> a Harvard law professor, and NYU law philosophy professor who is one of the most famous philosophers in the world. All three have basically said our Supreme Court is way too strong, needs to be fixed, is broken, has always been broken. And none of those guys were invited to be on the commission. Yeah, it was it, it was a complete failure. Yeah. It was a total failure of, of the moment. It was, it, you know, we're, it, we're not at a place where we can have slow incremental progress, which is something, you know, you, you say in your Supreme Myths, you know, maybe if we raise these issues and we can, you know, move towards yeah. progress. I started this podcast because, well, maybe if we raise some issues, we can shine some light on things and there can be progress. We are not at a point where slow inc- incremental progress is going to do anything. Right. You're right. And you'll be happy to know that, um, plugging my own podcast here, Christina, one of the co-chairs of the commission is going to be on my podcast. Oh, I can't wait to listen to that. So we we will get to some hard issues. <laughs> oh, I cannot wait. I hope all my listeners, um, you know, subscribe and listen to that because that's that's you know this is such an important time. It, maybe we would have a little more time if climate issues weren't bearing down our backs. Right. But we have authoritarianism right. and climate issues, you know. And you have young children. I have young children, and I ne- have to say, I never thought I was going to be in this place. In, um, in my life. Okay, so that, maybe we should end on this cheery note for your listeners. Yes, please. I, I say that sarcastically. <laughs> um, but your listeners, some of them probably don't know Justice Neil Gorsuch, who fancies himself a man of the West. And he did live in Colorado for a very long time. Fancies himself a you know, rugged John Wayne type Westerner. He's actually the son of Ann Gorsuch, who was the director of the EPA from 19, under Ronald Reagan, who tried to destroy the EPA. And who had to resign in shame. Neil Gorsuch went to the same private school as Brett Kavanaugh outside of Washington, D.C. He is a inside the Beltway person, despite his protestations to the contrary. But most importantly, he is the driving force right now in court behind this idea to limit the administrative state and the EPA specifically. And he's going to try to finish the job his mother started, which is to destroy the EPA. 
And at a moment, I, I mentioned that because you mentioned climate change. This is the, you know, this is the wrong time. It's always the wrong time. This is the, the, for, the, for the Supreme Court to, to cut the knees off the EPA, which they're going to do, is horrific beyond my imagination. And I'm sorry to end on that note, but it just is. It's horrific. No, and it needs to be talked about. I, it's dire. Well, thank you so much for your time. Really, it's been an absolute pleasure to have this conversation today. And I hope that everybody checks you out, especially on TikTok, because he, he threatens to, uh, to leave every, every time he's got a new video. So you definitely need to check him out on TikTok. And I will see you on Twitter, where you are a wonderful presence. Thank you. Yes. I think you have a great Twitter feed. I, I like your Twitter feed a lot. Thank you. Well, thanks again. And I'll talk to you guys soon.